Well, as uh, she alluded to in her uh, prayer, uh, this is a special day for us as a church, as a community. If you're new to Sojourn, if this is your first time or your or, or first month or two, uh, this is our last Sunday gathering in this sanctuary. Beginning next week, we'll be gathering a couple hundred yards to the right in our uh, new sanctuary. And, okay, you can whoop for that. I heard one whoop. That's not nearly enough. As excited as I am, uh, my wife and my daughter will tell you that I am, generally speaking, a pretty sappy guy. Judge me, don't judge me, that's your call. But I found myself uh, particularly emotional over this being our last Sunday in this space. Emotional with gratitude, grateful for all that the Lord has done. And maybe at the end I'll share a bit more about that. But as we transition sanctuaries, uh, I want to tell you what we're planning to do over the next five weeks. We want to ask a question. We want to ask a question because for a decade now, we have said this, that the, the church is not a building. The church is the people who gather in the building. And when we gather for what we're doing right now, there is something gloriously sacred about it. It is unlike anything else that we do in our Life, But the church is not the building. The church is the people who gather together in the building. And so as we move into a new sanctuary, here's the question that we want to ask. What kind of church do we want to fill it? As we move into a new sanctuary, we want to ask this question. What kind of church do we want to fill it? And to answer that question, we're going to look back at um, uh, 1 Kings 8, where a man named Solomon is dedicating this temple, the temple being the place of worship for Israel. In the middle of his dedication, he prays for the temple. And so what we want to do over the next five weeks is to take his prayer, his prayer for the temple, and let it be our prayer for us. And this week, we're looking at the beginning of his prayer, a house for my name, a house for my name, verse 20. Now the Lord has fulfilled his, his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which the covenants of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt." So here's how this temple, this temple that was constructed is described. It's described like this, a house for the name of the Lord, a house for the name. Now, what does it mean when it says this place is a house for the name? What what does that mean? Let me um, illustrate it like this. If I I say the name Martin Luther King, what do you think? Go ahead. This is going to be a conversation right now. If I say MLK, what do you think? Civil rights. Civil rights. rights. You, you, You think... Um, nonviolent protest, you think the speech, I have a dream. If I say the, the name Nelson Mandela, what do you think? Actually, it's anti-apartheid, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. You think racial reconciliation, you think political leader, you think president. So here's the point. A name carries with it a reputation. A name doesn't simply tell you who someone is, it tells you what they are like. A name doesn't only tell you who someone is, it carries with it a reputation of what that person is like. It's why in Proverbs you find a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. 
And you find the memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. You see, for good or bad, a name carries with it a reputation. And in this temple, this temple was to be a place where the name or the reputation of God would be made known among the people of Israel and by extension to the nations. And inside the temple was the ark. The ark was a small container that held holy objects. When I say small, I mean like 51 by 32 inches. So small in size, but large in significance. Because the ark represented divine presence, the presence of God here in this place among them. And here's what we need to know about the temple. The temple was much, much, much more than simply a worship center. So here's what we can't do. When you think temple, when you read temple in the Old Testament, don't, don't take our building, our property here, and, and kind of translate one-to-one upon it. Because in our building, our, our building is primarily used for religious or church activities, right? Primarily, what our building gets used for is what we're doing today, classes that we teach, gatherings for our church. Now, that's not exclusively what it is. We, we offer our building to, uh, uh, to the neighborhood, to the Heights, Sunset Heights Civic Club, uh, our association. We, uh, we do open the doors of our building to our neighbors, but it is not primarily used for that. It is primarily used uh, for our church or kind of religious activities. This was not as true of the temple then. You see, the temple was a cultural hub. It was the art gallery, the concert plaza, the poetry library. It was also the, the hub for daily economic, political, and religious activity. You see, the, the, the temple was not only a center of worship, it was the center of their society. It was the cultural hub and heartbeat of Israel. And so at this temple, they, they would come to this temple, and they would come into the presence of God, they would come into the divine presence, they would hear the scriptures taught, they would learn their scriptures here in this temple, but then they would also learn how to live as a redeemed community. They would learn how to take what happens in worship, the scriptures that are taught to them, and go out and live it out among the nations, to live as a redeemed nation among the nations of the world. They will learn to take the scriptures and apply it to the arts, to economics, to politics. You see, inside the ark was the Ten Commandments. These ten words on how to live as God's redeemed people. Don't worship other gods and don't covet what your neighbor has. Take your worship and then go and apply it to ordinary, everyday life. This is what was happening in the temple. They were learning to live as the redeemed community. And so when Solomon prays for the temple, he is praying for much, much more than simply a place where they would come and worship. He is praying for the heartbeat and soul of the life of the nation of Israel, that what would happen in this temple would shape the nation, would form the nation into the kinds of people that they were meant to be, the kinds of people who would take the name, the reputation of God, and make it known, put it on display out among the nations. And why does that matter? Here's why that matters. Because from beginning to end in the Scriptures, from beginning to end, the story of Israel is a story of God's name, God's reputation being made known throughout the ends of the earth, to the nations of the world. If you think about one of, one of the more famous stories in the Bible, the story of Jonah, we instinctively think what? Man in the belly of a fish. The story of Jonah is about God taking his mercy, his grace, his love, and telling Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them. 
Go to the, like, one of the more wicked nations on the face of the earth. You take my message, my love, my grace, and you take it to them. That's what the story of Jonah is about. It's not about a man in the belly of a fish. It's about this God of Israel coming and being the God of Nineveh. That's what the story of Jonah is about. And so when they come together in this temple, they're not just there to learn some songs and some scriptures. They're, learn, they're, they're there to have their entire life cultivated that they might make the name and reputation of God known in the world. It is why you repeatedly in the Old Testament have the prophet saying things like this. Let me tell you what I don't want, Israel. Here's what I don't want. I don't want you to come together, lift your hands and worship, and then go exploit the poor. In fact, if you turn to Amos, you know what it's going to say? I despise that. You know what I don't want, Israel? I don't want you to come in and pretend to be the vulnerable ones before me and then go out and take advantage of the vulnerable out there. Remember, Israel, you, 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 you were in Egypt. You were vulnerable. You had no authority over what was going to happen to you, and I saw you, and I came to your defense. I want you to go out into the world and go to the defense of those who are vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the marginalized. Point being, I, I want you to come and I want you to worship and I want you to gather here in this temple, have this place cultivate all of life in the nation, and then go out and make my name, my reputation known among the nations of the earth. When Solomon prays for the temple, he is praying for much more than just the place of worship. He is praying for the place where all of life in Israel would get cultivated, where all of life in Israel would be formed, where the name and the reputation of God would go out among the nations. And so, now we are going to hear and receive his prayer. And here, here's how we, we want, us to, I want us to hear this prayer. I, I don't want us to overly try to theologize the prayer. I, I want us to, if I could say it that way, I want us to hear and receive this prayer as a prayer from the heart of Solomon to the heart of God. And then apply it to us. Verse 22. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Okay, so here, here is where the prayer begins. The prayer begins like this, God, there is no God like you. No God out there that shows this steadfast, unconditional love for his people. The, the gods of the nations, transactional. Not, not you. Not you. You have this covenantal, steadfast, faithful love, unwavering, unmoving. And here's what we're asking. Here's our plea. Our plea is don't, don't leave us. Don't turn away from us. Remain faithful to us. And you offer your heart to those who follow you with their heart. Don't leave us. Don't turn away from us. Don't turn away from sojourn, Lord. Let's keep reading. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, Keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me 
as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. Here in this prayer, he is referencing back to a promise that God made to David. It's back in 2 Samuel 7. And the promise went like this. We're going to build, we're going to build a house for my name. There's going to be a king and a kingdom and a king to sit on that throne, and that throne will have, that king will have no end. There'll be no end to that kingdom. And again, here's the thing, though. This kingdom has got to be marked by people, by people who, who are people of worship and of justice, who, who take uh, what happens in worship and have it cultivate all of their life out into the world. A people marked by worship and by justice who don't worship other gods, who take care of the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized. This is what that kingdom is to be marked by. Let's hold on to that. We're going to finish Solomon's prayer. Verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? What a searching question that must have been at the time. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Hang on, I, I'm, I'm going to... I want to start over. I want to do my best. The, the Hebrew here, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, translated into English. The Hebrew just has this beautiful, emotive language to it, and I want to, want to do my best to try to bring it through. I want us to feel the emotion of Solomon as he writes this. But will, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O oh Lord my God, listen to the cry. Listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer of your servant that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Look at, the, look at how this section of the prayer is bookended. Will God dwell on the earth? And then will you listen and hear from heaven, your dwelling place. Listen, the, the heavens can't contain you. This house, this building, it can't contain you. But when, when you're looking upon it here, will God dwell on the earth and will you hear from heaven and listen? Your dwelling place. Your dwelling place. So here's the picture that we get from Solomon here. The picture that we get is that the, the poetic picture that he is painting is that the temple is this, this place where heaven and earth meet. This place where heaven and earth meet, it is where the society of heaven cultivates the societies of the world. Will you dwell on earth? Will you hear from heaven your dwelling place? The poetic picture that he is painting here is of this temple where heaven and earth meet, which brings us back to the house being the place for God's name and his reputation because the goal was this. The goal was this. It was always this, beginning to end in the Scriptures that what God thinks of himself is what the nations would think of God. I want to say that one again. 
The goal was that what God thinks of Himself is what the nations would think of God. And they would think that because of the way that Israel worshiped and lived. That through Israel's worship and through their life, they would see that community and believe in their God and think what is true about their God. It was always about the name, the reputation of God making its way through Israel and to the nations. That the temple was about heaven being made known on earth, which is why later you're going to find Jesus praying that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer of Jesus did not come out of nowhere. He did not invent that prayer out of thin air. That prayer was grounded in who Israel was supposed to be and what was supposed to be happening through this temple, that heaven being made known on earth. The question is, did they? Did they? If we look at the life of Israel, did they make heaven known on earth? Did they live in such a way that what was to be cultivated in the temple was made visible and known throughout the nations of the world? And the answer is no. That's why the prayer finishes when you hear, forgive. See, at this point, we're left with a question. We're left with a question, the question being, why not? Why not? If the answer is no, why not? Because listen, Israel's, Israel's history, a cursory glance of the Old Testament, and you will see that their history is marked by giving their hearts to other gods, exploiting the poor, and their political life, utter catastrophe. Why? Why? Why, if this temple is heaven and earth meeting, why then did it not cultivate in them and create in them the life that they were called to live? Why is it Why is it that if this temple is heaven and earth meeting, did it not create the kind of people it called them to be? And the answer is this, that this temple was always and only a foreshadow, a foreshadow of a temple to come, a temple where heaven and earth would truly meet, a temple that would not be destroyed, not by Babylon, not by a storm, and not even by death. And when that temple would show up, he would look and he would say, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. The temple he was speaking of was the temple of his body. You see, Jesus is the answer to Solomon's question, will God dwell on the earth? He is the answer. He is the answer to will God dwell on the earth? He is the place where heaven and earth meet. And when heaven and earth meet in him, here is what he did. He took heaven to the cross. He took heaven to the cross. And on that cross, he opened the arms of heaven wide and invited all the nations to the heart of God. When he went to the cross, he opened the arms of heaven and invited the nations to the heart of God. And in his resurrection, through his resurrection, he created a new temple. He was the true temple, and through his resurrection, he created a new temple, a temple being the church, you and me, the place where heaven and earth meet today. Where heaven and earth meet today. Jesus died on the cross to open the arms of heaven to invite the nations into the true temple himself so that you, so that we, so that I could be this new temple. Sojourn, this is who you are. Listen to who you are. I want to read from Ephesians who you are. It's why we, it's why we plead and we pray and we hope and we beg to see yourself, to see the church as so much more than a place to go and receive like religious goods, teaching, a place to raise kids, a place to make friends. All of those are good and beautiful and right, and there's nothing wrong with any of them, but the church is so much more than that. 
Listen to how you are described. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There's household again. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see the progression in the Bible from the temple to Jesus as the true temple to you as the new temple? The new place where God is dwelling right here on earth in you and through you. Which means that you, sojourn, are the place where heaven and earth meet. You are the place where heaven and earth meet, where people walk into our community. They're meant to see heaven on earth. It is meant to come together in you and us. That's why consumerism has to be eroded from the church. We live in a consumeristic culture all around us. And listen, when it comes to the grocery store, I am as much a consumer as anyone out there. I want the best price, the best produce, and if you can't give it to me, I will move on somewhere else. That cannot be how the church is treated. Because she is the dwelling place of God on earth. It just can't be. It can't be if... I feel a seven-minute rant coming. I'm going to stop right there. We are here. Jesus' prayer for the church in Houston on earth as it is in the heaven, in the heights, in Houston as it is in heaven. We are that kingdom come on earth to live as the dwelling place for God. Where when, when people walk into our homes, when we have meals with them, when they show up here, when they go to our Paris gatherings, and we can explain what that word means later, get to see heaven on earth, a taste of it. And we get to redefine God's reputation for those who need it redefined. And we together are redefining that reputation for one another as well. Because the arms of heaven are still open, still inviting the nations and our neighbors to the heart of God. Which is why when 12 people met in a living room, dreaming about our church, imagining what kind of church we might be. At the heart of that dream was a church where the arms of heaven would be open to all. All. Every man, woman, and child from every economic class, from every ethnicity, all. All invited into the heart of God. That was sitting at the heart of our dream for our church. It was true then. It's true today. And we have gathered at the High Church of Christ Fitzgerald, which is no longer there. I know, it's sad. Don't derail me. Um, and six away at Aurora. And next week, a new space. Our where has changed, but our why never has. To be a people where God dwells among us, that his name and reputation might be made known to all. Every man, woman, and child where the arms of heaven remain open saying, come, anyone and everyone, come to the heart of God. You are welcomed and you are invited. There is grace for you. 
And so if you guys would allow me, as we change sanctuaries next door, I would like to close out our last sermon in this sanctuary with telling you what drew myself and my family to sojourn in 2014. When churches are hiring a, a new pastor, you have to have the audition Sunday. So you come, you preach, everybody puts on their best dress. And churches have creative names for it, but at the end of the day, it's an audition Sunday. I actually had a lot of fun with that day. I pretended to write a sermon for a passage that we weren't supposed to be on and put everybody in a tizzy. And the true story, I really did that. Um, and on that Sunday, on that Sunday, before we began, my wife and I stood right over there, around the fourth or fifth row, and we just looked at the room. I can still see it like it was yesterday. And we saw the people, and we just watched. And then I turned to her, and I said, God is here. In that unexplainable, but yet undeniable way, we just knew God is here. And so what kind of church do we want filling our new sanctuary? The kind where in that unexplainable but yet undeniable way, you just know God is here. You just know God is here. So what does it look like to be that kind of community? What does it look like to be that kind of community where people can walk in and just know God is here? Well, it looks like being a people of worship and justice, being a people who take their faith public, and it shapes their way they see economics, money, profession, politics, care for the vulnerable and the poor. And that's what we're talking about in the next four weeks. There's a foretaste of where we're going. It looks like being a house for the afflicted. It looks like being a house for the foreigner, a house for the repentance, and a house for the faithful. I believe those four were true of us five years ago, and I believe that they are true today. May it always be so. I would like to finish and close the last sermon in the sanctuary saying something on behalf of the elders, our staff. To you, Sojourn, we love you. You are a beautiful people. What the Lord has done and is doing among you is a joy and a gift to see. And it's easy to know today that the Lord is still among us. And we will continue to pray with you and for you that it would always be so. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the men, the women, and the children in this room. Thank you for the chance to gather the way that we do week in and week out. May it always be true that we just know you are here and you are among us. Keep us faithful. We know that you will be faithful to us. Keep us faithful to you. We don't doubt your faithfulness. Help us to remain faithful individually and as a community. Help us to be a place, a community, a house where your name and your reputation is known, exalted, seen, displayed, and redefined for our world. And help us to be a house where the afflicted are welcome, the foreigners invited in, the repentant are loved and cared for and trusted and welcomed. 
and keep us a house for the faithful. We need your mercy to do it. We know that we can't just do that on our own. And so we're asking you to do it. And we're asking in Christ's name. Amen.